So today I want to talk to you about weakness. I want to talk to you about weakness. I want to look at Matthew chapter one. So if you have your Bibles, you could take them out. But weakness is something in our society that we are trained to eradicate. You know, if you're weak physically, go to the gym. If you're weak emotionally, go to a therapist. Weakness is something that we, it, we try to train out of ourselves. And what I want to tell you today, and I'm just going to start with it, is that weakness is actually the secret ingredient. It's, in the world, weakness will cause failure. But in the kingdom, weakness becomes access to true strength. The fact is, if you felt this year like you couldn't do it, you were right. If you felt like you weren't enough, you were right. If you felt like you didn't have the right plan, the right strategy, you were right. You don't. And so the story of the Bible is not the story of how humans figure it out. It's how, despite the fact that we can't figure it out, God Almighty, through our weakness, come on, I'm just going to preach this right off the bat, begins to do what we cannot do, begins to give us strategies that we could never imagine or create, begins to open up doors that we could never open, begins to close doors that we would open that shouldn't have been open, and all the glory goes to God, but it is in our weakness. And so I guess the question I have for you as we get started is what do you do with your weakness? Because for years, I tried to cover it up. For years, I tried to camouflage it and even convince people that it wasn't there. But I'm learning that as I get closer to Christ, I, I get better at revealing him through my weakness. And so I wanna show you something because we looked at the genealogy of Jesus through the line of David. And as we look at Matthew chapter one, we have this genealogy of Jesus. This is his like 23 and me. And so you get, you get to see it. Now, the Jewish people, they actually traced their lineage because the family line that you were from was very significant. It would, your tribe would determine much of the way that you lived your life. And so as we see this, it's very intentional, but I wanna go deeply theological right now, but I know that not all of you are theologians, so can I just go Maury Povich on you? <laughs> Because this is scandalous, because if I were to read Matthew chapter one to you and you didn't understand genealogy, you might not understand how scandalous this really is. So I'm gonna read it for emphasis. Can we go there? So this is Matthew chapter one, verse one. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Right there is like, ooh, you mean Abraham that actually slept with another woman and made Ishmael. And you know, Ishmael, that would eventually become the line that produces Islam. You mean that Abraham, the Abraham that didn't have faith in one season, even though he's credited in Hebrews chapter 11 for having faith and being a father of faith. You mean that messed up, imperfect guy? You mean Abraham whose dad actually worshiped pagan idols? Oh yeah, that Abraham, that Abraham. So it starts out with scandal. See, when you hear Abraham, you probably hear, oh, he's the father of the faith, but he was first the father of failure before he became the father of faith. So you gotta understand how scandalous this thing really is. Then Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah, the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar. Everybody go, what? <laughs> Tamar. Now listen, we have kids in our midst at every campus 
And I, I hope this provokes you to actually read your Bible this week. I can't even tell from this. I thought about trying to actually tell the story of, and some of the saints are laughing right now because when they heard the Tamar, the, the word Tamar, like they know exactly. I don't even know how to tell that story in a way that won't get this video flagged on YouTube. And if, if you don't know what I'm talking about, please do a Bible study on Tamar and some of you are going to, yeah, okay, never mind. I see, I can't even joke about it. It's that bad. I literally have not, I, okay, I'm going to move on. But people would have heard that and been like, Jesus the Messiah came from that woman too? And, and Salmon, the, the father of Boaz by Rahab. So now we have another woman. You mean Rahab? Now watch, I'm gonna say this in air quotes. Rahab, the prostitute who hid Jewish men in her apartment so that they wouldn't die? Oh sure, the prostitute is hiding guys in there. You ever think about it like that? So Rahab was, I don't even have time to preach all these Bible stories, but suffice it to say, Matthew is, is being ornery. I'm here in Indiana. We know what that word means. You know what that word means, ornery? Like Matthew is intentionally offending people into the truth of the gospel. And so, okay, let me go. Can I go a little bit further? And David was the son of Solomon by the wife Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father... I'm not speaking in tongues, but it sounds like it. Now, in the midst of that, there's also a little bit of scandal, but I think it's important to note that there's a lot of names we don't recognize because Jesus, the Messiah, came from a line of insignificant people as well. So there's something about understanding the importance of God calling you to do something great for him, coming from a line of people that never did anything great. So even when common people are mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus, it's to help us understand that something uncommon can come from something common. As a matter of fact, when the anointing of God comes upon your life, it will change you from uncommon, from common to uncommon. So there's a revelation on that. Some of you are like, I don't know why God would ever pick me. Listen, once the anointing comes upon you, there's a shift that happens in your bloodline and something that's common becomes uncommon. And it's, it's not you, it's the anointing upon you. It, it makes you uncommon. And so there's something rich about this. But then Hezekiah, the father of, of Manasseh, and Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of uh, Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation of Babylon. Now, Jewish genealogies often did not include women at all. And if you were going to include women, I think it would be wise to include some of the matriarchy, like Leah. <laughs> you know, they, there could be like some, somebody significant. Does that make sense? It's like, if you were going to include women to prove that Jesus was the Messiah, you probably should have included, let me, let me look at this, because I was thinking about this on a deeper level. And I was like, at, at least you would maybe include Sarah. May, there's, some, there's other women that may, may have made sense. So why include the most scandalous women? <laughs> Y'all, I'm trying not to preach this. I'm trying to teach this. But why include so many flawed people? I believe it was, it was Matthew's way of saying that God always had a plan. 
There, there's something about now, just to break this down a little bit deeper, when you have, you have these women like Rahab that was listed, then you have this, and then Bathsheba is actually in the line who David would have slept with, which we talked about weeks ago. These are Canaanite women. These are Hittite women. These women are not Jews. They are Gentiles. So not only are they women that came from backgrounds that would not have been respected by a Jew, but to go even further, they were not Jewish. And so what Matthew was trying to help people understand is that the plan for the salvation was not just uh, through the gospel, was not just for the Jewish people, but also for everyone because God had already woven in people and even used somebody else's sin to weave them in. Oh, I'm gonna rewind that. <laughs> even used somebody else's sin to weave them in. Some of you are like, I don't, I think I married the wrong person. I think I should have never been with him. I should have married a godly man. Can I just give you news that God will even take what was sin in one season and weave it into a story that brings him glory? Come on, some of you don't understand that there is something happening in the genealogy of Jesus. David, you failed and went after Bathsheba, but Jesus was saying, I had to bring Bathsheba into the bloodline to prove that this thing wasn't just for the house of David because my house has many rooms, says the Lord. So there, there's something about this. God will take, and some of you are even like, I don't think I should be here. You don't know me. You don't know my family. Yes, I do. You, if your family's half of what Jesus' lineage is, then it can testify to his blood and his power. It can testify to his, some of you are like, I just come from a lineage of low down sinners where so did Jesus. I don't know what business I have coming to church. Why am I even here? Well, what business does a Hittite have coming into the temple? But think about this. A Hittite and a Canaanite and a Moabite could not come into the temple, but through marriage, they came into the bloodline. Amen. Oh, did you hear what I just said? Like when you look at the genealogy of Jesus and you see these women, you have a Moabite, a Hittite, and a Canaanite being brought into a bloodline. They couldn't go into the temple, but God found a way to get them in the blood. See, right now, even through this simulcast, there are some people who feel like I can't even get to church anymore. Well, you may not come to church, but I'm asking you a deeper question. I'm not asking you, do you belong to a church? I'm asking you, do you belong to a bloodline? Because when you understand the bloodline, you come in deeper than just church. It's not just fellowship, it's covenant. And so what we have is covenant in this house. I'm gonna join with you, you're gonna join with me because he joined with us. So I just, I just had to make this plain. The, the secret is the weakness. The secret is the thing that you are trying to keep secret. <laughs> oh, I could never tell them uh, about the rape. I, I could never tell them about the incest. I could never tell them about how I uh, was broke and used to steal money and rob cars. I could never tell them about how I cheated. Listen, they overcame by the word of their testimony and the blood of the lamb. The, the secret is in what you are keeping secret. When you learn how to make it public, God says it goes from a tragedy and it turns into a testimony. Come on, I'm trying to help somebody. The way you take a, a tragedy and turn it into a testimony is by taking it from secret, making it public. And some of you are like, well, it's not a testimony yet. 
It's a testimony once you stop acting like you're strong. <laughs> it becomes, because, oh, come on. Somebody's going to get this in their spirit. I got to go a little bit deeper. I want to show you right off that line that I spoke because I was doing some deep research on this and it blew my mind. Okay, so if you go back to first century listeners, if they, were to, if they would have been reading Matthew chapter one, they would have been saying, what? Ooh, ah, what? it would have been Maury Povich. They'd have been like, you mean Jesus, the one that we're dying for, the one that like healed the diseases and cast out demons. You mean Jesus had a prostitute in his lineage? Jesus, I mean, they would have been like, what? But let me go deeper. There's something else that they would have heard. They would have heard this because they understood the importance of numbers. And, when you, and they would have heard it like this. They would have heard the number 14, 14 generations, and 14 is a multiple of seven. So Matthew is implying that the entire flow of God's history of creating people for himself through Jesus is our Sabbath rest. So from Abraham all the way to Jesus, it's 42, not 14. Three sets of 14 is six sets of seven. So in other words, when they read the genealogy, they would have been counting. See, we don't understand this because we don't track our genealogy to the degree that the Jewish people did. But they would have heard two things. One, they would have heard the scandal and they would have been like, so Jesus was not a pure-blooded Jewish man? He had Moabite and Hittite and Canaanite blood in his veins. Oh yeah, that was on purpose. Because oh, when that blood was spilled on the cross of Calvary, it was Moabite blood too. It was Canaanite blood too. It, oh, come on, somebody. It was Latin blood. Oh, come on, somebody. It was European blood. It was African blood. It was Asian blood. See, when, he, when that blood was spilled, he was saying, I had to get them in my bloodline because I was going to actually say, Bathsheba sinned, but I never sinned. Come on, somebody. They failed, but I never failed. And so I'm going to redeem the blood. I have to receive it, then I could redeem it. I had to graft it in so that when this sacrifice happens, it is complete. 42, not 14. Three sets of 14 is six sets of seven. So when Jesus shows up, they would have said, whoa, the Messiah means rest. But rest from what? So let's talk about how the Jewish people live their life. I live in New York City, in, in Queens and in Brooklyn, where I live. You see the Jewish people everywhere. Uh, shout out to all the kosher places I absolutely love. Um, and I just, it's, I love their culture. But what it means even in the 21st century to be a Jew, an observant Jew, is that you follow hundreds of, of laws on a daily basis. And it causes you to think about every decision that you make because you want to come into the perfect will of God. But there's a Sabbath rest that they have that starts sundown on Friday and it ends sun, uh, sundown on Saturday. So it's a full 24-hour cycle. And I've often spoken of this, but if you go to, to the nation of Israel, and I've been fortunate enough to go there a couple of times, you'll see on Friday night sundown, everything shuts down. And it's a very eerie feeling. The first time I was in Israel, I needed uh, contact juice. Uh, I call it juice. I don't know what it is. Context lens solution. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know where that started. Contact juice. 
And so I was like, I, I desperately needed to get these contacts out of my eyes, but every single store I went to was shut down because they said, we will observe the Sabbath. But so what that means to them is six days of work and then a day of rest. And, it, and even there is in New York City, Shabbat elevators and Sabbath elevators, which means there's a setting on the elevators of New York City. And this might sound crazy to some of you guys, but you get into the elevator and it actually goes up every single floor and down every single floor because they believe to even press the button of an elevator is work. So if they're called to rest, they would say, I can't even pressing that button is work. And so if I'm truly on Sabbath, I just have to wait for the elevator to come down and then I get on it and I ride every floor until I get to my floor. Isn't that crazy to think about? Now, the reason why that's important is because it helps you understand just one iota of how they defined rest. So when they read the genealogy and they saw Jesus in the genealogy, they would have said, wait a second, Sabbath is not the absence of work. It's the presence of Jesus. Because Jesus represents saving us from that which we cannot save ourselves from. And so true Sabbath is not a day. That's why the Seventh-day Adventist and, you know, there's different even factions within Christianity and there's major arguments over Sabbath and they get even mad that we have church on Sunday because we're not observing the Sabbath, but they fail to understand that, that Jesus is Sabbath. And all these Christians that are guarding their schedule, I need a Sabbath every week. Well, the absence of activity is not rest. The presence of Jesus is rest. Because you can sit on a beach in Malibu and sip in a drink with an umbrella in it, thinking that you're resting. But if Jesus is not in your midst, you've never rested at all. You can lay down on the beach and you can soak in the rays of the sun. But until you're with God's son, you have never experienced true rest. And so the world is saying, I need a break. No, it's not that you need a break. It's not that you need to get away. It's that you need to get into his presence. So when Jesus entered, Emmanuel, God with us, what, he, what they were saying is we used to have to wait for rest, but now, this is deep, but now rest has come to us. We, we, do, you, do you hear what I'm saying? They would have looked at the cycles and the generations and they would have said, we used to have to wait until sundown Friday, but now that time is not time. It's a person that's come to us. And that's why I say, a lot of times we say, we're not religious. We're not like the Catholics. We're not religious. We're, we're not like the Methodists. We're not like the Presbyterians. But can I tell you that religion comes in many different forms. And so to a warfare Christian, our form of religion is I'm gonna fight harder. I'm gonna crucify the flesh more. Oh, I feel the anointing on this. You know, they're doing sacrament but we're doing spiritual warfare. And one can be a form of religion. Oh God, when I enter this sacrament, maybe, maybe I'll please you. But then warfare, sometimes we can go so deep into fighting, so deep into warfare that that becomes a form of religion to us. Because we're saying, if I fast more, if I pray more, no, no, no. <laughs> You're not, you, there's no amount of fasting that will earn the approval of God because the approval of God was already fully satiated by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. So we don't fight 
and fast for breakthrough. We fast from a place of breakthrough. We are already free and we're fat. The New Testament says we're fasting as a bride that longs for the bridegroom. And so fasting is simply saying, because I love you so much, because I desire you so much, I'm going to allocate more time and more energy to this devotion, but I dare not do this thinking I'm earning anything from it because Christ has already won it all. And when God sees me, whether I'm praying or fasting or not, he sees the blood of Jesus upon me and the approval of God that I have upon my life is actually the approval he has upon his own son. Are y'all following me? And I've got to preach it like this because sometimes we think if I scream louder, if I shout harder, if I go longer durations of fasting, no. Did you ever notice that when Jesus was baptized, he came out of the water and God says, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. Then he went to go fast on the mountain. He didn't fast for approval. He fasted from it. I'm trying, see, I'm trying, this ser- service is all about Sabbath rest in our weakness. And, and I wanna, at every location, I wanna ask that the band comes up right now because I wanna begin to minister to you. This is one of the most significant moments in our church, like I had said when we had started, because a church that understands rest, a church that understands Sabbath, a church that understands what to do with their weakness will kill an orphan spirit. See, when you come into a church, oftentimes it's, do they really know how gifted I am? Do they really know how talented I am? Maybe I can reach a place of significance. Maybe I can work hard. Maybe I can learn from what Pastor Mike is preaching and it will unlock principles for entrepreneurship and my life can take on new meaning through extravagant wealth. Maybe, you know, we have all these thoughts. The single people are like, maybe I can finally get married. It's like we have all these thoughts of what could happen. And then sometimes we, in our weakness, we fail to yield, we fail to submit, and we end up being strivers. And there's something about striving. And I think about this holiday season where many people are falling in the trap of striving. Because when I look at the genealogy of Jesus, what I see is a whole lineage of people that were doing everything they could to try to make a better life. Try, you know, when you look at Abraham, it was like, I'm gonna go away that my father only got halfway there, but I'm gonna go all the way. When you, when you look at Rahab, she was protecting the soldiers because she saw the demise of her region and was like, maybe I can get in on this thing. Maybe I can belong to another team. I don't know if you're anything like me, but if you look at your own family, if you look at your own blood, sometimes the question is, I wish so badly that I could belong to another team. You know what I mean? Like why my family? Why from where I'm from? And, and then we start striving saying, I'm gonna be different than my dad. I'm gonna be different than my mom. I'm gonna, I'm gonna be different than my grandparents. And there's something in us that can click into that mode. I think one of the most challenging parts about raising a church up nationally like this is we can take over Times Square. We can take over thousands of movie theater auditoriums across the country. And if I don't tell you that the secret is the weakness and you only see me boldly preaching and standing in front of thousands, you might not know. 
that this year was one of the hardest years of my entire life. You might not know the anxiety, the fear, the worry, the apprehension. You might not know uh, the days where I got up and said, I don't know if I could do it this day. And I think I want you to wake, I want you to see me waking up and going through these trials and tribulations. But because oftentimes like we show, we're faithful to show the stage on Sunday, but we don't necessarily show our living room on Monday. And when you look at Luke chapter two, so we heard Matthew's genealogy of Jesus, but in Luke chapter two, he says, in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration and all that they were registered in their own town. And Joseph also went up from the Galilee, from the town of, the, of, of Nazareth of Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house of the lineage of David. So do you see how Matthew and Luke now are cross-referencing each other? And so now he's saying, okay, there was a registration that had to be made and to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who is with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him on a manger because there was no place for him. So I want you to understand, you have this lineage from the house of David. Now a census is being made and they're being called to go back. And this perfectly references with Matthew. And so they, but now you have a deeper understanding of the significance of coming from the house of David. But I want you to understand that Jesus was born with Moabite, Canaanite, and Hittite blood. That David was born a lineage full of sinners. I mean, even the best among them, David himself, Abraham himself, miserable failures by the standard of God. Nothing that they could have done could have saved themselves. And then Jesus shows up. He's not born into opulence or extravagant wealth. Did you know that in the book of Proverbs, it says a good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. Jesus born in a manger has nothing. So if you are born into a family, no inheritance, no lineage, Jesus had to start with nothing to prove what true rest really is. Because rest is, watch, hear me, hear me. This is the most important part. True rest is not starting with nothing and then working your whole life in hopes that finally you die having something. Because if I were to think about Northwest Indiana, I see some of the most hard, the, some of the hardest working people I've ever seen in my life. I mean, literally going to places they hate just to buy enough stuff to feel good about changing their existence from being born with nothing and, and dying with something. When I think about New York City, when I think about Long Island, I see people that are willing to work 12, 14 hours a day to just give their children something to say, maybe life could be better than it was for me. But can I just tell you, the secret is the weakness. Because what happens is you work your entire life to buy a house, and you think, I'm gonna give your, my kids a house and then you die. And it reminds your kids of you. So they sell it to give, so that they don't have to deal with the reminder. <laughs> I mean, everything that you work for. And I, I think what, when I think about Jesus, when I think about the lineage, 
I think about Jesus saying to that woman, that widow woman, she gave two mites and he told the disciples, be like her because she gave everything. Why? Because matter of fact, in Jewish society, you were supposed to give widows and support the widows, knowing that the widows couldn't support themselves. So for her to give everything, what Jesus was pointing out was what she did with her weakness. Because Jesus is always watching what we do with our weakness. And so if you say, well, I was weak, so I worked my butt off so I could buy a house. I was weak, so I, I, didn't, I didn't let certain people in. And I only made friends with those who got my back. And I was weak. I was weak. So if you have that mindset, then, then you're thinking the wrong way. Because, okay, th this is the grand finale. The thing that we ought to do with our weakness is give. <laughs> That is the legacy. Jesus, Jesus represented God's tithe. He said, for God so loved the world that he gave Jesus. And then Jesus would often withdraw to desolate places to pray. Why? Because he took that weakness and he said, I know that the only thing that I must do is offer myself up. And so it's not about what you get. It's about what you give. See, weakness in the world standard will actually make you live your entire life trying to get something, but weakness in the kingdom will cause you to use your entire life pouring and giving. And people will say, well, Pastor Mike, I guess you're able to preach every week because your life is easy. No, it's because I learned the secret is my weakness. When I am weak, then I am strong. It's my weakness that provokes me to give to you. People say, how could you get online and teach every day? It's my weakness that tells me Mike, the legacy that you leave is not brick and mortar. It's not the building in Indiana. It's not the buildings that you, the legacy that we leave is a legacy of generosity that says, don't allow your pain to let you become selfish. When David was hurting, he became selfish and said, give me Bathsheba. Come on, somebody. When this is how sin happens. Sin is always rooted in selfishness and selfishness is always rooted in pain and pain will bring you all the way to death or pain will bring you all the way to a resurrection if you learn how to give. And so this is the thing. It's, it, it, this is the heart of the kingdom. The secret is in the weakness. Oh, I can't serve on the worship team because I'm going through something. No, wrong answer. Look at the widow who gave both mites. If you're a two-talent person, give both of those talents because keeping them back to rest is no rest at all. Sabbath comes through Jesus. Jesus taught us how to give. Giving releases more anointing, more power. Those who are trusted with little will become rulers of much. People say, Mike, you're so anointed. How did you get the anointing? I said, I didn't start with a lot anointing. I started with a little anointing. But when I learned how to give that anointing away, the Lord says, I'll entrust you with more. And the more I give, the more I receive. The more I release, the more I receive. I said, the more I release, the more I receive. Some of you are like, how am I going to get out of this situation? You're not getting out. You're going through. See, that's the thing Jesus was saying. We're, we're not getting, Israel is going through this thing. Bring them into my bloodline so we can redeem it instead of running away from it. So there's something about giving. There's something about giving. 
oh, you know, I, I don't give to the church financially. I don't have money. Well, that's your problem. You do. I, I was raised in the poverty of poor or in the culture of poverty. I was raised in welfare in section eight. And I will tell you, this is what I do know about the poorest people in the United States. They, if they're addicted to cigarettes, they'll always afford cigarettes. If they're addicted to alcohol, they will always afford alcohol. They, you will always find the money to fund that which you crave. But when you crave the spirit of the living God, when you crave his, come on, you will, you will say, God, I have to, I, I, there's something about this. I was telling the story about how my mother, Sandra, when she was, uh, uh, probably in her early forties, I was a teenager and I just started preaching and she gave her last $50 to Jensen Franklin and said, God, make my son a preacher like Jensen Franklin. Can I tell you, if I was my mother's pastor, I would have told her, don't give that money. You're foolish for giving that money. But see, my mother was operating in wisdom because she understood there has to be a seed. There has to be a sacrifice. This is how you deal with weakness. You don't hide it. You don't put it in the corner. You don't act like it's there. You fully expose it by giving. And so she began to release that money all these years later. I'm in a Zoom preparing for the second release of our film in theaters. And I'm telling that story as I'm training pastors and leaders across the country. And sure enough, one of Jensen Franklin's friends and co-laborers is in the Zoom unaware. He also had my phone number. So I get out of that Zoom and, and right there in my phone is a, is a group text with Jensen Franklin and with this man and me. And he begins to tell Jensen the story about my mother sewing her last $50. And then, and, and, and I said, Jensen, all these years later, my mother's prayer was answered. I said, you have multiple locations in the United States where you stream. And so do I, there's a grace that came upon my life. Why? Because my mother said, if it doesn't meet your need, it should become your seed. And, and see, some of you still don't understand the way of the kingdom yet. You don't understand the way of the kingdom. That's why when you do altar calls, it fills up. But when you ask people to give and serve, it doesn't in most churches. Our church is different because you because the preachers don't teach them how to give. The preachers don't teach them the secret. People are like, Pastor Mike, how do you have so much energy? I don't. I am weak. I don't have energy. But when I take what little energy I have and I give it to the master, all of a sudden he begins to multiply it for his usage. I don't have energy to do what I want to do. I don't have uh, energy for my will, but I have energy for thy will. There's something about giving. There's something about it. And Jesus understood. Come on, would somebody just jump to their feet right now so I can close this thing out? Because I feel the anointing. I feel the power of God. There's something that begins to change when we stop hiding. Once you admit, I can't be a good husband, you have now fast-tracked to the most direct route to being a godly husband. Once you say, I cannot figure out how to provide for my family, I don't know what to do. You have fast-tracked yourself to begin the fastest route to that destination. There's something about revealing your weakness that actually causes God to reveal his provision. It's when God says, show me what's in your hand and I'll show you what's in my hand. I can do something with the truth, but I can't do anything with a lie. And so when I think about the greatest breakthroughs in my life, it wasn't because I tried harder. 
it's because I revealed what I had been concealing. That's, a, that's why we hate when pastors live in privacy because what, what I know and what, and what they don't know is that the more you begin to conceal it, you're training a whole congregation of people who believe that you're strong when in fact you're not. And the reason why so many ministers fall is because they wanna convince the world that they're strong. I think what we're called to do at V1 is to convince the world that we're weak. Because then when people say, but how, I don't understand. You guys have accomplished some of the greatest things that I've ever seen a church accomplish. Yeah, that's the whole point. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. Oh yeah, that's right. Oh, best-selling author. Oh yeah. Oh yeah, that's right. When he puts his hand inside of my hand, greater he that is in me than he that is in the world. When he begins to speak through my tongue, he takes that which is weak and makes it strong. I can't do nothing without him for I am the vine. Come on. I am the branch and he is the vine. I can do nothing. Greater he that is in me. Listen to what it says. I can do all things through, <laughs> through, 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 through. Some of you are trying to go through a vacation. <laughs> Sometimes you're gonna go through a promotion in your job. Sometimes you're through, I'm, no, no, through Christ. I want a journey through him. Okay, last thing. Can you bring that slide up at every location? We're getting ready to, to show you something this year, and I'm in awe of this, and I got to brag on God. Is that all right? Right? 7,450 people were fed food physically across our locations this year. 7,450 people were fed food that were hungry. 5,442 people are actively in groups right now from addiction recovery to women's groups, to men's groups, to marriage groups. Look at that, it's 5,442 people. 1,850 movie theaters. Over 20 million people have been discipled through the sermons and the content from our house. Over 20 million when we looked at the numbers. That is crazy. How many of you are believing for a billion people reached this year? One seventh of the planet, I think we can do it. And people would say, yeah, but you're in Portage, Indiana. What good can come out of Portage, Indiana? Oh, come on, somebody. I'll show you what God can do with the group of people who say the secret is our weakness. The secret is our weakness. And this one hits home to me because we baptized in one year 799 people. And the reason why that's so significant to me is we were in New Jersey being faithful to that pop-up service. We had it completely packed from front to back. And all of a sudden the spontaneous baptisms literally went for over three hours. I've never seen anything like that in my entire life. It was totally unprovoked. People were getting in their clothes and family members were looking at other family members bawling their eyes out and they were telling our team, I never thought they would get baptized. I never thought they would be saved. I never thought they would come to Christ. And while that's happening, 
my daughter Bella, 16 years old, she grabs me and she says, Daddy, I know you got your clothes on, but will you go in that water with me? You were supposed to baptize me in Israel, but it got canceled because of the war. But I feel like I need to get baptized right now. And so here's the thing. I got into that water with my daughter and I was, it was all murky because we had baptized over 50 other people. And all of a sudden I began to hold my daughter. We began to weep together. And then we went down in that water and we came and she came back up and we celebrated. So that 799 is important to me. But let me tell you the secret. When I devoted my entire life to making a way that other people's daughters can be baptized, God made a way that my daughter can be baptized. The secret is in the weakness. When I tried to save your family, my family ended up getting saved too. Come on. There's something, the secret is in the weakness. When I set the baptism up for your family, my family got baptized. Some of you don't understand. You gotta give your way to the next level. Ah! Oh, I feel the anointing. We're about to close out right now. And I know we, we're going to have prayer team members. Can we get some prayer team members up here at every location? Come up front. And we're going to open up the front for people so that they can receive prayer. But I want to do something even more powerful than receiving prayer. Because do we want to pray for you? Absolutely. We're ready. Here in Indiana, we got some powerful prayer warriors. But want me to tell you what's, what's going to be more powerful for some of you than receiving prayer is I want to see who among us understands that the secret is the weakness and stepping into the direction for the first time of your life because this is all about identity. See, when Jesus showed up, what Jesus said was, I am the savior of the world. So he gave because he knew who he was. See, the God's been doing something in your identity because many of you, you see yourself as only receiving. Many of you, you know your needs and you're saying, man, the greatest thing that could happen today is that somebody in this church would give to me financially, give to me emotionally, that, that I would receive today. No, no, no. The truth is, okay, listen, they would give to you today and then it wouldn't be that your, all your needs would be satisfied. It's that your needs would change because in life we go from need to need. But if you want to go from glory to glory, learn how to give. There's something about that. There's something about, and it's about your identity. This Thanksgiving, you know, Papa Sigs, I have secret money that I have stashed in the house. Every good doomsday prepper should have secret cash in their house. I live in New York City just waiting for something to happen. Oh, I'm, I will survive. I got that cockroach anointing. Ain't nothing going to take me and my family. I'm ready. I'm ready. Thanksgiving happened. I had some cash that was saved and the girls were talking about doing Black Friday shopping and I came out and I gave everybody $100 and they were all like, no, no, that'll make somebody happy. Let me tell you. And, and as I did that, they were like, you don't have to do this. But they took it though, let me tell you. But they took it though, boy. And they left out that house. And when they left, the Lord told me immediately and I began to cry because the anointing came upon me. The Lord says, you didn't see yourself as somebody who could do that years ago, which is why it never happened until now. Once you saw yourself as one who gives, not one who just receives, 
then I gave seed to the sower. See, it's an identity issue. It's an identity issue. And God is working on your identity right now. See, Jesus understood who he was. And there's an identity issue. Some of you only see yourself in the posture of receiving. And that's why there's a QR code up there. I want to give you an opportunity to feed somebody else. I want to give you an opportunity to do something for somebody else. That's what this is about. That's what, that's the whole point because there's power in that. So I'm going to pray for our entire church across every location. I know Harvey and Jess have needs in Miami, but their, but their congregation might not even know that because they're showing up and giving. I know that Eddie and Jocelyn have needs. I, I know that Daniel and Exica have needs. I know that Chase and Haley have needs, but what makes you the leader is not that you lead in needs, it's that you lead in giving. <laughs> and so God is causing something to happen in your identity right now. We've been talking about inner healing. How many of you have been healed through this series? And I said, God, why do you have me in Northwest Indiana? Because I was timing it. I'm like, I want to be with them for Christmas, Lord. And then I got here. And as soon as I landed and I started seeing this region again, the region where I'm from, and I got triggered a little bit because I remember the nights where we went to bed hungry. I remember the nights where we wore every layer of clothing that we owned and our coats so that we would survive no heat. And the Lord says, Son, I wanted you to preach the message of giving and the place where you learned how to give in the midst of your weakness. So I don't know who this is for, but there's a widow's mite that's getting ready to drop in the bucket today. I don't know who this is for, but Jesus is watching. I don't know who this is for, but this is the turnaround. I don't know who this is for, but this is the pivot into the next season of identity. I'm gonna pray over our entire church and then we're gonna sing this thing out. And then if you need prayer, you come up. But if you need to give, that might be your form of an offering right now is Lord, while this prayer is happening, I'm going to give and you let the Lord do what he wants to do in the midst of you. So heavenly father, I thank you for each and every one under the sound of my voice from Long Island, New York City, Miami, Bakersfield, Indiana. God, I thank you that we are going to know the secret to our weakness is giving. The secret to our weakness is saying, I am not a victim. I am victorious. I am the head and not the tail. I am the first and not the last. I am the lender and not the borrower, God. This is the turnaround, God. I know the secret is my weakness. You give seed to the sower. And I am strong enough to say that I will give encouragement when I need encouragement. I will give a word when I need a word. There's something about this being deposited in the DNA of families right now. I'm not going to be a victim anymore. And right now in the name of Jesus, I break that victim spirit, that spirit of Absalom, that spirit that came over many people. I break that spirit of the vagabond and the beggar in the name of Jesus and Route it out of every single one of our houses. Route it out of every single one of our families. And I thank you that 2024 is going to be the year that we sit on a pile of seed that feeds the nation. That 2024 is going to be the year, God, that we step into the fullness of what you call us to step into. Can somebody just shout an amen if you come into agreement with that? Come on, let me hear you shout. Hallelujah!